Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through a miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm alright, thanks Ed. How are you? Good, good. Still mad about Brett Kavanaugh, because it's only been an hour since we last recorded. <laughs> um, Same. Not much has changed. Uh, still sad and furious, but... Yeah, I'm still, uh, yeah, I'm still smashing the patriarchy. It has not yet been smashed. Mm, uh, there's a lot yeah, to think, smash through. God, imagine if it's been smashed in the week that we between episodes. Though, we'll look so, we'll look so foolish. That's the one reason I would happily look like a fool. Bring it on. Mm, absolutely. So, at the beginning of last week's episode, we talked about how um, there had been like some news that had happened over the the weeks that we were away, and that we kind of catch up on some of it this week so apologize apologies for people if some major things have happened in the past week that we won't uh, discuss about we'll talk about them next week this is starting to turn into the, the pre-shaped call-in show from mr show <laughs> <laughs> we just need uh, mary lynn rice cub to be uh, to start mm. kick us off with hey everyone it's ed and emily do, 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 do. <laughs> i'm just uh, like i'm just floating so that as a, as a suggestion yeah uh i, th- I think we could get her probably not She's, I mean, she's got 24 money, so she doesn't really need to do anything. But maybe, maybe she, maybe she'd do it as a favor. Yeah, she seems uh, nice. She does seem very, very nice. Like every time I've heard her being interviewed on a uh, chat show or anything, she just seems really, really happy to be there and really bemused by the fact that she achieved like a shocking level of success through just being like a bit bit player on a TV show that she just kind of like just went into as any other job which i think is probably true for a lot of actors but like it, it certainly seemed like based on where her career had been going at that point as like a, a kind of almost legendary kind of like alt stand up in la there was no indication that she was going to very quickly become a household name yeah uh, so we're going to talk uh, some of the news stories that caught our eye over the last couple of weeks one that uh, will require a little bit of um, audience participation here because it's a little visual is that there was a, a poster released for the forthcoming new version of Hellboy that's coming out next year starring David Harbour and directed by Neil Marshall, which I'm looking forward to. I like all the people involved. I'm, I'll need to see like a trailer to get a sense of, again, to go back to what we were just talking about, but you know, to go back a trailer to get a sense of the feel for the movie if they're going to keep the kind of like fun yet you know kind of heartfelt and earnest vibe that Guillermo del Toro brought to it um or if it's just going to be all grimdark but you know we'll, we'll see how that shakes out but they released a poster for it and uh, the poster was notable for me again this kind of comes back to our marketing discussion for having this real dissonance to it because the imagery is gorgeous it's this like real wonderful hand-painted image of of hellboy it looks like a drew struzan painting you know like a real classic 80s marquee poster and then the tagline is legendary af <laughs> which is <laughs> like uh, it just it did, those two things seemed so at odds with each other uh and it really it, it was real one of those because it was being shared on twitter it was like a real kind of like open for a surprise kind of thing because, <laughs> like, you just saw the like the 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 Hellboy head and you know the art like and everything and then you open it, it's like what 
Why? <laughs> it reminded me of an SNL sketch back in the day with Andy Samberg as the creative consultant on Game of Thrones, but he's a 14-year-old mm-hmm. boy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he just <laughs> wants boobs and everything. And to me, it felt like they went to him for comment, legendary AF. And then that became the tagline. <laughs> it's also a poster that's so stunning. Why do you even need a tagline? Mm, it, it, yeah. It, it's not like anyone's looking at that thinking anything other than like, oh, it's pretty legendary, almost as fuck, if you will. And that they need that <laughs> on the poster just to confirm that. Yeah, it, 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 it also bespeaks like a marketing department that maybe doesn't understand what the movie is. Yes. Like, which is you and I, as you and I talked extensively last week slash over the past hour, um, <laughs> it's very, oh, you're, you're in murky territory of your marketing department doesn't understand the film, doesn't doesn't grasp mm. the product or the artifact that you're trying to put out into the world. Which which reminds me, and um, not to kind of like cannibalize, add to what's the reverse of cannibalism <laughs> of our episode we already aired. Um, <laughs> But, but uh, not to reverse cannibalise last week's episode, but um, that just reminded me of the funniest thing I've ever seen in, an, in, a, in a documentary, which is there's a documentary about the making of 12 Monkeys called The Hamster Factor and Other Stories of 12 Monkeys, which is by the same guys who uh, made Lost in La Mancha. Oh, and uh, the two of them make for very interesting con- studying contrasts, uh, but also uh, as a sense of continuity, because like, oh, all of his films are chaos. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they <laughs> succeed or not. But uh, there's a bit in it where the, the film's been made and they have to go in to marketing meetings, you know, like Terry Gilliam and his team have to go in and they're being shown posters and they're being given taglines and they're being asked them to, uh, they're, they're being asked for their reactions to it. And there's one where the tagline they say is, uh, our future is in the hands of a man who has none. And Terry Gilliam like sits there and says like, Make it sounds like a movie about a man which doesn't have hands. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there's just like, there's just this like silence in the, there's silence in this office for like five seconds. It's like, everyone's like, oh, right. This man has no hands. And I remember watching that with um, my housemate at the time, Chris, and we were watching it just like out of idle interest and we had to pause it because it was this because <laughs> we were laughing so hard at this just the thought of someone coming up with that tagline thinking it was so good and then just having it so completely demolished in that way of being like and then also from that then us imagining well what would Twelve Monkeys be like if Bruce Willis didn't have hands it would be a very different movie <laughs> I mean that's a remake that I'd be I'd be interested in seeing I'll be honest with the Hellboy <laughs> with the Hellboy tagline as well it does feel ever so slightly a sort of 4.30 Friday afternoon. They've been all there for hours trying to come up with something. I was like, yeah. well, we've got half an hour until we want to leave and get down to the pub. This'll do. And and it reminds me of one of my favourite jokes from the not especially great recent season of Arrested Development. Maybe is, you know, she's pretending to be this uh, older woman so she can live in this house. And she says... Uh, she she kind of like uses some young sl- young person slang, and uh, she says, "As the old people think, the young people say." And that's kind of what I kind of that's what legendary is. AF. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the uh, that's what I imagine just being like legendary AF. As the old people think, the young people say because it's not even like <laughs> it's not even that current. Like that that feels like it's something that's played out. I mean, if it's being used in movie posters, it's definitely played out <laughs> using yes. using AF for things. 
it's done um, for now. <laughs> as soon as canceled. it goes, as soon as it's cancelled, as soon as it's gone to print, actually, Hell Hellboy, like even even just the tagline "cancelled" on Hellboy would have made more sense to me. <laughs> um. Uh, the next piece of news this uh, was over, just over the last couple of days, and I think was maybe um, the funniest thing I've seen in ages in an actual news story. Which is great because so much of the news is hilarious these days. Obviously, uh, it was nice. <laughs> it was nice to have one where you could think this is unambiguously a funny, <laughs> an incredibly funny thing to have happened, which was that Banksy had an art sale. And he sold a poster for, I think, 1.3 million or 1.4 million. Uh, So a huge um, sale, obviously, it was a big deal. Everyone was very excited that, you know, like Banksy was selling this piece of art and it was going for so much money. And then as soon as the sale went through, the frame that the poster, that the painting was in, uh, was revealed to actually be a shredder. (laughs) The the painting went through the shredder and was instantly destroyed. And, like, I I get a little bit tired of of some of Banksy's stuff. Like, some of his his stuff is, is great, but, like... I feel like anyone who tries to do the anti-establishment thing for that long, it kind of become, feels a little tired at, at a certain point. So, yeah, like some some of his stuff now kind of feels rote, but I feel like that in terms of really honing in on the idea of like, yeah, all this high art stuff is absolute rubbish. Uh, like you honestly couldn't find a better example of that than someone spending millions of dollars for a thing that then instantly gets destroyed. The photo that Banksy took mm-hmm. or at least someone in Banksy's team took at, at what was on his um, Instagram account the photo of the reaction as it's just been shredded itself yeah. looks like a renaissance painting, it's incredible <laughs> and so fertile for memes <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I've already seen a few today, things like um, the people sitting at the bench being labelled with uh, my family, friends and Twitter <laughs> followers and then the shredded picture of me oversharing online. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one as well. Which is, which <laughs> is crass. Um, the only other thing, and I mean, yes, it is fun and, and I am going to be feminist killjoy here. Banksy quoted mm-hmm. Picasso, like the urge to destroy is also creative version or something like that. And I'm like, can we not quote Picasso after Nanette anymore, please? Possibly, like, just be Banksy. Don't Don't try and if you're trying to do this sort of anti-establishment thing, but then you're also quoting Picasso, it's like, just just go for it. You don't have to explain much more <laughs> much more than that. Mm. Um, and actually, yeah. funny enough, at the same auction, um, Jenny Saville has become the world's most expensive living female artist because wow. her, her incredible painting, Propped, sold for £9.5 million. Pounds, Amazing. Which is over twelve million dollars wise um which is an incredible story and it is like i mean yeah i find the banksy stunt really funny i think it is like what else do you expect of course he's gonna kind of give two fingers up to the art world and they've probably been up his ass and they'll still lick lick it off anyway like it is funny it is funny but it's a it's a cheeky boy doing a stunt and actually there's been a huge landmark for a woman artist that's been that's been made so busy fucking day at Sotheby's though I mean god (laughs) yeah making history on the one hand and then just bearing witness to a really kind of like even by Banksy's standard a really quite 
extra extravagant stunt like extravagant in its simplicity yes <laughs> it's just like this is a very simple thing to do but it's a very um it's wonderfully high profile and like you say that image is that image of the the painting coming through and being half shredded is is amazing <laughs> okay so our main topic this week is going to be food movies which is something that you and i've been talking about doing for uh, a little while now mm. um and uh is honestly like one of the most exciting the most excited i've been to discuss about any of these because i i i really do love watching movies about food i love seeing anything that really manages to convey the sensation of of smelling food and tasting food and 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 and, and that really kind of like delves into the creative process of of making food and i think there's so many interesting cultural and social elements to food and what the role it plays in cinema and tv that i'm i'm really uh, excited to to delve into um but uh, i think you you watched a movie this week which you know i think a lot of people definitely would hold up as one of the, the kind of like of recent times like one of the great food movies uh, ratatouille yes. uh, and so like so um, I, i'd like you to start us off uh, talking about uh, about ratatouille I heard so much about Ratatouille and I'm really late to their party on it. Um, whereas I've watched pretty much the majority of Pixar stuff that's come out in the cinema, but for some reason Ratatouille just kind of passed me by. And what really struck me as the film began was how it managed to get across the sensation of, of eating and taste and flavour and experiencing mm. something because as we move ever further into what I believe is the darkest timeline of 4, 4DX and all this kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, please don't make the cinema essential experiences. Not those senses anyway. It's like, you can smell things. And I'm like, well, yeah, with Ratatouille, <laughs> that might be quite nice, but I can't really see how that's going to come across with, um, with much else. It's like, you know, perfume adverts. It's like, well, if there's not a sample, then what are you trying to sell to me? Anyway, mm. I think... The funny thing about having having films that are focused on on food is, of course, you've got this huge, I want to say, barrier, because if, mm. if so much hinges on on this this food, and we necessarily can't experience that other than visually, and maybe sonically sometimes in terms of like if it's being cooked and you've got like sizzles. Yeah. And there's so much of the in Ratatouille, for example, there's so much of the sounds of working in a high end commercial kitchen. Mm -hmm. um as well and, and pots and pans and it's a very dynamic thing cooking and then eating but the thing that is great about ratatouille is you've got remy and he's discovering that he has this incredibly sensitive palette and a real way of, of putting things together and it's this gorgeous animation where everything in the world seems to fade away and he has this really synesthetic experience of like darting colors and lights and it's almost like a slightly sort of jazz kind of soundtrack but wow mm. that that really beyond actually eating something amazing that you haven't tried for the first time that is kind of the closest to how it feels so i was really taken aback by how that hadn't really been done more before it felt mm. quite a novel way of getting that across and then Ratatouille, just in terms of what it's about, is so markedly different from other Pixar stuff because, yeah, there's a family element to it and there is a bit of the old abandonment, which um, Disney always, always loves. But mm. that is really barely even a subplot 
and not and not actually I don't think it adds that much to the film at all really it's about it's a film that's a lot to do with imposter syndrome and having a dream mm-hmm. and ambition feeling somehow deficient but then the passion of what you want to do kind of carrying you through and it is a dialogue between artists and and creators and critics yes and you you posited to me as I started watching it you're like there's lots of great bits, but try and guess my favourite moment. And then it's right at the end of the film where Peter O'Toole's critic has this absolutely beautiful monologue on being a critic and being, which which can so easily tip into being a cynic. And mm. he has this incredible experience with the food where he's just so grateful for being made to think again and to see everything again and I remember uh, messaging you being like doesn't happen to be this bit does it like got it in one yeah yeah I win gold star for me (laughs) um and that's really beautiful and it's interesting that Ratatouille that there's a lot to do I think everyone who is making it is dealing with a lot of their own um artistic doubt um and that food is the you know, because it's not like, oh, it's a writer or a, a photographer. Mm. No, 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 it's food. They're using food as that vehicle to express these very specific, their artistic insecurities. And I wonder if that choice was made because the food can look really, for a start, can look really visual and really appealing and appetising. And then secondly, maybe it's just because food is universally accessible. <laughs> So you can yeah. understand why, at least if at least if you don't understand why Remy wants to cook, you definitely want to eat what he's making. Um, mm. So there's yeah, there's ways the, in for various people. Yeah, one of the one of the notes that I made, not specifically about Ratatouille, but like this was something that I I kind of kept coming back to when I was watching, as I was watching multiple movies about about food in preparation, was food does seem like the most accessible form of creativity yeah to really kind of introduce people to those ideas because like 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 you say like a writer like lots of people write but there's not like it's very hard to make writing compelling on screen like maybe the best example be something like uh fear and loathing in las vegas where you have um like uh hunter s thompson like at his typewriter and then johnny depp just reading out the the words he's writing about the wave, about the wave kind of cresting and the end of the 60s and everything like that. But that's not really digging into a creative urge. It's not really about creativity. It's more about, hey, this guy was a really good writer. <laughs> he wrote this really good thing. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of movies that try to be about the artistic process really struggle to convey that because it's, you know, it's a very internal thing and like, yes. and a lot of, and, and a real problem. And this is something I think you see in, in any kind of like movie about writing, about music, about filmmaking, about any about this sort of thing is like, as soon as you say, oh, this character is a genius and people are going to see this work of art they're going to do and it's going to blow them away. As soon as you see that work of art, unless it's genuinely good, like the entire fiction of it falls apart. Yes. Like, 
it's just like this song is terrible or that this movie they made is is like derivative and trash you know like uh, 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 and, but with food it's like oh yeah we can see it like this food looks really good and and everyone looks are... like they're enjoying eating it you don't actually have to taste it we just get those visual cues that it's a success completely and yes. um i think also it gets food manages to get across that the the necessity of creativity because mm. I think it can be really hard for people to really understand like but why like this this thing is driving you you mad and your life is falling apart what what is it about this that you have to keep going and I think there's just something so necessary about like well everyone wants to eat <laughs> everyone has, yes. has to eat but that becomes a a stand-in for that that complete sense of purpose that a creator may have and i think mm. the journey that remy goes on and the the hijinks and scrapes he gets himself into to essentially not be caught out and to be able to continue to do the thing that he wants to do and locks into this interesting kind of i'll scratch my back you um well actually no i'll scratch the top of your head because i'm literally <laughs> under your chef's hat and uh you'll you'll be all right it's a relationship with this with this other chef who's in a similar position and it is a really lovely way of I think the thing that I really love about it is that I'm an absolute mad fan for Heather Haverleski and her mm -hmm. writing she's the uh, advice columnist for her advice column is called Ask Polly and it's on the cut um, at the moment and she's written several books but she often gets people uh, writing in saying like you know I want to be an artist and I feel like I'm struggling and I'm doing this dead-end job and and what should I do and Heather Haverleski is like you you find it in the work you can't look to these kind of end success points because that won't really happen you have to actually enjoy or at least embrace the challenges as well as the um joys of your actual work and I think that comes across in Ratatouille that Remy really is a true artist because it's not that he needs a critic's approval he's mm. he's more trying to you know that's that's not the happy ending is not aha i defeated the critic the happy ending is i get to work every day you know he has a quick bowl of soup and then he's getting ready for dinner service and he can cover the machinations and the logistics of this huge operation and there's something really lovely about actually the happy ending is just doing the job that you like every day yeah and uh, i think what's interesting about ratatouille as well is how much it is embraced by critics when one of the the, the antagonist for the movie or at least for the third act of the movie because uh, anton ego doesn't really show up until the restaurant kind of starts picking up and starts getting attention even though he is depicted even though he's a villain and <laughs> is depicted in his office which is shaped like a coffin <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, the critics do love its depiction of what a critic does even though like at least in you know kind of initially like there's this idea that he's this kind of like villain that's hanging over the whole movie he can make or break this restaurant and everything like that i think it does is because bradford understands the the role that critics can play as you know like some of them you know they they, they can get drunk on power and like the idea they can make or break careers but they really but even those people who are kind of like maybe viewing it very cynically what they all all good critics want is to kind of be impressed by something and to be, have uh, an experience that really kind of like illuminates something 
about themselves, about their life, about their experiences. And that's what's why when he eats the ratatouille, he has the Proustian rush to his childhood. That's why uh, that is so uh, affecting because it does cut to the heart of why why he does what he does. Like he may have like ridiculously high standards and he may be like un- like cruel and really enjoy being cutting. But what he the reason why he writes about food and the why I think yeah why lots of critics write about like movies or, or books or plays or anything is because they love the thing that they write about and they just want it to be as good as possible. And I think that's something that a lot of other movies that include critic characters often uh, forget. Like if you look at uh, Lady in the Water, where the poor, uh, where the um, Bob Ballerman character is the critic ends up being brutally killed, or you look at. Um, uh, is it Lindsay Duncan who plays the critic in, Anch- yes. in, in Birdman? In yeah. Anchorman. <laughs> I almost said he was, she was in Anchorman. Um, <laughs> which will be, you know, great. Release, release the Lindsay Duncan cut. Hashtag. Yeah, like, like there, like, the, the, the critic is, like, pure, like, soulless antagonist who just wants to destroy Michael Keaton's character for seemingly no reason. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, You're totally like, right, because... Ratatouille understands that actually critics and artists are not antagonists and, and protagonists. You know, it's it's not actually a battle. It's two different angles on the endeavour of making and appreciating good art. Mm. And yeah. that really beautiful moment where there is that rush back to childhood. There's that kind of that memory that's so warming and to have such an emotional response to food um mm. rather than it doesn't just taste good it transports him and yes that's something that i'm not sure how else you could show other than in film i mean it's what you know you look mm. at like heston blumenthal and, and his sort of theme things and he often talks a lot about memories and uh taking people down through a story in food and a lot of actually you know you sort of high-end chefs are trying to do that that they are artists who are telling a story but with food you know you you have a menu you have courses there's a narrative in there and Mm. the better you understand that narrative understanding kind of what what should happen next but with flavors rather than with plot points you know and i think ratatouille Mm. really captures that but the other film that i watched which completely is embodies that is uh, Babette's Feast, mm. which is a French Danish film from eighty seven. Uh, now, actually, it looks stunning. I watched it. It was a um, NHD stream through Amazon, and it mm. still looks beautiful. And it follows two incredibly pious sisters in in Denmark. Their father was a landmark preacher, and they set up this religious community, and they live in this incredibly minimal and austere environment everything they do is towards caring for the community and into their lives comes Babette who is this French woman who needs a safe place she's under a very sinister threat uh, to her life in France the sisters both have former suitors who were turned away by their father but these two men have irrevocably changed after their experience with the sisters and one of them is this French opera singer who uh, Babette is his is his cook and so he gets in touch with the sisters and sends her over and Babette then lives with the sisters for 14 years wow. learn, learns excellent Danish and then her one connection 
to her old life in France is a lottery ticket. And it turns out she wins the lottery. So she has 10,000 francs. And what she does is she puts on this feast and it's the feast day for the sister's late father. And she says that she'll make the meal. And she makes this group of often very quarrelsome, tired, bitter, at least within the community, the sisters are um, more saddened than they are angered by things. She makes them the most incredible meal any of them have ever had. And the it's it's so beautifully shot because the contrast is the sisters begin by um, teaching Babette French, but also their very simple recipes. And there is a soup that is um, Urgut soup, which is made with stale bread and some ale and boiling down. And it just looks the thickest, muddiest, gloopiest. And you can see Babette trying it for the first time. And you can see her not quite gag, but but it's definitely mm-hmm. not going down all that well. And she kind of steals herself to appreciate this and, and carry on. And soup seems to be the order of the day. Mm-hmm. That's That's what everyone gets served. You occasionally see a glass of milk, but there's really nothing. And there's just this very strong sense of denial and a kind of misguided piety. And to honour the sisters and their father and to thank them for saving her life and, and giving her shelter. Babette uses her lottery money to make this feast. So there's 12, 12 at the table and there is a seven course menu. <laughs> <laughs> um, beginning with turtle soup. Then you've got some blinis with caviar. This incredible dish called um, kai en sarcophage. That's my horrible, horrible French pronunciation, which uh, basically means, I think, birds, birds and sarcophaguses, but it's a quail mm. um, in a puff pastry shell. There's this ondi salad, rum sponge cake. Then there's the cheese course. Then there's coffee. But the thing that I love is that I'm, I'm just reading this all off the uh, Babette's Feast Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. They've also got the paired drinks with each course as well. <laughs> <laughs> and the gorgeous thing is, is that everyone starts eating this food. And again, similar to our Ratatouille critic, there's something about the sensation of all being together, coming together for this meal, a meal that is really beautiful and well-crafted, prompts this previously rowing community to start sharing memories of the late father with each other and to make, to become self-aware and forgive each other lots of people accusing people of ripping them off and then being like well I probably deserved it because I did that to you that time (laughs) everyone gets drunker and and the old general who has this before he goes over to visit the sisters and to honor their father there's an incredible uh sequence with him talking to his younger self saying I've done everything that you've asked me to do (laughs) and so much of it is about doubt and lost chances and coming to some sort of acceptance with it because very little then actually changes but everyone's managed to reach this resolution through this community through this indulgence and appreciating the present there is something that is so kind of that feels fleeting about it but Babette it's this really it's this really generous act on her part to thank the community and to bring the community together and then, spoilers, mm. she spends all of her money on this meal. Um, mm-hmm. 
reveals that she used to be the head chef at this wonderful uh, restaurant, but you know all that had to stop because um, because she was in danger. Um, and so mm. she is this artist living this really secluded, quiet life, serving these two sisters in the community. This really quite revolting looking ale <laughs> ale and bread soup, and yet she's mm. capable of um, making turtle soup for twelve by shipping everything over in ice. Mm -hmm. so, so from from Paris, so it can get to Denmark, because that's that's the level of her gratitude. That's how she wants to display it. You know, there's psychological chat about love languages, and and food is huge in that. Um, yeah. In terms of acts of service and what what you do by making a meal for another person, and it's just the most gorgeous film about building along the table. Mm. In 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 every sense. Um, yeah. And it's a really, it's a really important watch now. It's quite, it seems a very gentle film, but I think there's actually, it's shot through with some really radical ideas and it's just a sight to behold because mm. this is late, late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. And you just think, well, yeah, there's not really a fridge. There's not a blender. Uh, <laughs> this is all completely from scratch. So it's incredible to, uh, really incredible to watch. Yeah, that, that got me thinking just that the, the, the last thing that you mentioned about, you know, like the how, how good it looks. I think one of the things I, I found quite interesting in looking at a, a variety of different movies is how so many of the movies about... Uh, that's kind of like uh, uh, two, two two points, I guess. But that the, the, so many of the movies about that feature for a food so prominently, they're often sort of low to mid budget because I think food offers kind of a very affordable opulence. Yeah. <laughs> like if you can if you can make food look really really good on screen, mm. then you don't need the biggest budget for anything else. Like yeah. You can tell stories at a lot of different budget levels and it all still look gorgeous as long as you can make the food look as good as possible. Which is why Ratatouille is actually probably something of an anomaly in like some massively expensive food movie because yes. of the way it's made. And the other thing was how many of those kind of stories uh, about food tend to be immigrant stories. Yes. And, and that really comes across in uh, a movie from a couple of years ago, which I think... Got very, very nice reviews. It's a very nice movie. It's kind of not a movie that I think would kind of get pointed to as kind of like a classic, but it is a very, very charming movie, which was The the 100 Foot Journey, which is a movie where Ompuri, the late Ompuri, plays this patriarch of a Indian family who come to France. You know, they've, they've, they had to flee India due to religious intolerance. They kind of went to England. They didn't like England because of the weather and the food, <laughs> which is fair enough. Um, there's other reasons to dislike England. <laughs> but those are certainly Plenty. two of the big ones. And then they go to France and, and they kind of like set up this restaurant and they they start selling in, uh, Indian cuisine uh, to this small French village. And there's a rivalry with the French restaurant across the road, which has got a Michelin star run by Helen Mirren. And it's a, it, for the most part, it's kind of a very gentle culture class comedy, uh, comedy, and about these people kind of like coming to a new place. But you know, it's it's also a, a story of of intolerance as well, because like some of the staff at the French restaurant you know, firebomb the Indian restaurant at one point and write France for the French on the wall for outside of it. Helen Mirren you know, reacts very badly to that. She fires the people who she knows or suspects were involved, and you know that it kind of 
becomes the kind of the opening to developing kind of like a warmer friendship between her and 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 the Indian family. And it's it's I find it very interesting thinking about how much food it, from different cultures, both in movies and just in in the world itself, are is often used as kind of like a signifier of multiculturalism both positively and negatively like if you move into uh like if you move somewhere and you want to kind of brag to your friends about how cosmopolitan places you say oh you know they've got loads of vietnamese restaurants or something yeah but if you don't like multiculturalism then like food is the thing you go to if you want to portray the these these outsiders in your worldview as being in some way weird or as like outside of the norm you know like that if you want to make fun of the french you talk about how they like to eat horse and snails you know those are the things that people kind of like talk about um in in certainly growing up um near leicester which has a very big indian and pakistani population i remember lots of kids at school you know would would use variations on curry as you know kind of a racial epithet yes against against people like that and so I, I that that was something i thought was was very interesting that food often can kind of like serve as a very easy backdrop in for stories like that where you are introducing an element of a new community and a new cult a new culture going into like a pre-established community and how that food kind of becomes the focal point for that kind of a conflict in a, in a way that I think is very palpable and very easy to grasp for pretty much anyone watching the movie. Totally. And I and I think sort of further to that, slightly sort of moving away from the more kind of like um, sociology of it, food is a mm-hmm. really excellent way of being able to mark a character's otherness. So yes. one of the distinguishing features of um, Matt Smith's Doctor, for example, is that he's absolutely starving for fish fingers and custard. Yeah, yeah. Once he, he generates, like, that's his energetic thing, and that becomes a really significant moment and, and, and bonding memory with the young Amy Pond. Um, and, mm. you know, I wonder how many, maybe seven-year-olds are like, can I have fish fingers and custard for breakfast? Like, Dr. Who. <laughs> um, I certainly considered it, because I do like both, just together. Yeah. I don't know. But also in Under the Skin, where Scarlett Johansson's Italy has kind of, run away uh, to the highlands and she's sitting in a cafe with a giant piece of chocolate cake mm. that looks really thick and indulgent and anyone looking past would probably think oh you know she's she's treating herself but then she tries it and you know she's not got a human system she can't really eat so she she tries but and and that is a beautiful moment like Scarlett Johansson's hella problematic in in her in her public life but as an actor <laughs> in that moment I think is incredible because you genuinely believe she doesn't know how to eat or at least yeah. her system can't actually take that kind of food. Thinking, looping back ever so slightly. So yeah, the otherness, but also looping back ever so slightly to um, making food look good. Uh, and then nothing mm. else has to look that great. The absolute epitome of that is one of my favourite films of the 90s. And I think a much, much overlooked rom-com is Simply Irresistible, starring mm. uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar as mm. a chef who's feelings go into her food and then whoever eats the food has that feeling there's there's also lots of quite like magical stuff there's levitating and and all of this and it's it's one that actually it is my favorite trailer of all time because i completely forgot that i just thought she was sort of a witchy type character no 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 i completely forgot that her powers kind of hinge on the presence of a magic crab (laughs) and i forgot this until the trailer 
quite far of the way in was suddenly like this really badly it looks like a plastic crab on a string that's just being <laughs> yanked about the place but every so often pops up it's like oh yeah magic crab the point being i forgot about the magic crab because the food that she makes even though you don't see an awful lot of it when you do see it, it does look incredible and you see this mm. huge kind of emotional response to it and that helps you ignore the fact that the rest of it has been so cheaply made. Did I mention the plastic crab on a string? <laughs> and also um, there are some really awkward camera angles that are clearly meant to mask the fact that they're not outside in New York. It's very much an internal a, stu- mm. a studio scene with the lighting is not that great <laughs> and the perspective right, yeah. of the door doesn't really work amanda pete is in it too and she's great so i yeah i, I guess this is me just sneaking in being a shill for simply irresistible <laughs> that that also reminds me of the movie waitress oh, uh, with kevin russell waitress which is a really beautiful again a, a beautiful movie that i think also kind of touches on a lot of things we were talking about in terms of creativity and the idea of, you know, Kerry Russell makes these, like, incredible pies and each one she kind of, like, names after the thing that she's feeling at that particular moment. Uh, which is kind of something that could have been overly cutesy, but I think that um, uh, Adrian Shelley, who, who directed the movie, I, I think she really brought kind of, like, an earthiness to it. So it's not all just kind of like, oh, this woman's quirky, she makes all these pies. Like, it is very clear that this thing that she does in naming these pies and really throwing her her whole being into kind of making these things is a way of her coping with the fact that, you know, her life isn't where she would want it to be or, oh. you know, like she's, she's deeply kind of like sad about how things are, are going. And this also ties into a movie that, that I watched in preparation for this after you recommended it to me with Julie and Julia, oh. um, which at the, pretty much at the very beginning, the character of, of Julie played by uh, Amy Adams at, uh, at, at her peak cuteness. Oh. <laughs> she's immensely cute in that movie with her lovely uh anna karina hairdo she talks about uh, when she starts doing this blog she talks about you know the, the fact that there's something so comforting in cooking you know like you can have the the worst day at work and then her job in the movie is a pretty brutal one working for an insurance company dealing with people making claims after 9-11 um yeah. you can have a, a rough day at work and then you come home and you know that if you combine eggs and flour and all of these ingredients you will have you know the thing you're trying to make and I, I think that is that that's one of the things about that movie uh which i found um very kind of like uh, as, as someone who you know likes cooking a lot and likes baking a lot uh that's something i find to be very dry i find it very therapeutic to kind of make things and like the sense of achievement you get once you kind of like you followed the recipe and you've made the thing and you can kind of like hold it in your hands and you're like I, I make this thing. It is very, very comforting, a very kind of like cathartic thing to do, particularly if you're just trying to take your mind off the world. Yeah, and it's amazing how that very simple comment, it's a, it's a beautiful couple of lines. I mean, Nora Ephron, God, Nora. Mm-hmm. Um, it manages to encapsulate and articulate the pleasure of being able to bring something into the world that is certain when you are surrounded by so much uncertainty. Like cooking mm-hmm. is an art, but it's also a science like there are certain chemical reactions that you are putting into place that mean that this will this will happen. I adore Julie and Julia. I think it's a film that is often, again, slightly, I think it's probably marketed very strangely, just to pop back to that again, mm-hmm. because it's dismissed, I think, as kind of fluff. 
Like, oh, yeah. it's this woman doing this kooky challenge to find herself alongside some period drama stuff. But it's actually one of the most emotionally wrenching and complex depictions of two different women who are trying to do their own thing in their own way in from a source of great personal pain it's about mm, it's about yeah. working through and creating through pain and being able to give joy to others and then take that joy back for yourself yeah. it, it contains i think one of the best scenes in cinema history ever and the best acting from Meryl Streep that she's ever done, mm-hmm. which is where she and her husband discover that her sister is pregnant. And mm. it's always been sort of not explicitly said, but but within that within that scene she she breaks down and it's clear that this student child and her husband can't have children. And yeah. she is distraught at this news, but then manages to turn to her husband, beautifully played by Stanley Tucci. And says, mm-hmm. I'm so happy in a kind of, there's something in the tone of the way that she says it, which is like, I know I'm crying. I know I'm crying for me, but I am also happy. And he says, no, no, I know. And that experience of being a woman and that the, the complete kind of um, confusion that you have at how you, you feel what you want in your life and how it can feel that other women getting things in their life can feel like a slight. But if you're so close to these women it's also a joy and and that you're proud of them or pleased for them. All of that confusion, all of that nuance is completely there. And the relationship between Julie and Julia as well, when they finally sort of come together, was not how I expected it at all. Mm. Also, just more butter in everything. (laughs) The the thing that I love about Julie and Julia as well is that we also see all of the failed attempts at the food Mm. as well. Everything just gets like horribly burnt or doesn't quite work out. So you really do see the entire creative process. Yeah, I, in particular, I think of when Julie is uh, writing her blog about how she had written, uh, how she had tried to. I think it's a stuck, uh, a stuffed duck, and yeah. like she drops it, and all the stuffing falls out on the floor. And she talks about having sort of having a bit of a meltdown over it. And I was like, Yeah, I've been there. Like in my yeah. uh, creative endeavors, or or even just you know like strictly cooking, like. You work hard at a thing, you make it, and like you drop some stuff, and you're like, oh, fuck, "This is the worst fucking thing." Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like I'm working so hard, and it hasn't quite come together. Like, no, it, I think it, it really kind of like feels that. And I think again, that comes through in the idea of like uh, cooking as a metaphor for accessible creativity. That definitely feels like Nora Ephron saw a lot of you know her own kind of experiences as someone who was a writer for a very long time, and even a very successful writer. But you know, like even successful writers have failings. They have, you know, novels that they start writing that don't come together or they write scripts that don't get made and things like that. And, and like, the you can really feel that there is a, an acute connection between her and her characters in those moments. And I think, because be- there was a beautiful story that came out after she died, which is the number of people who were friends with her who realised that what she did was that if she wanted to make friends with someone, she'd find them at, you know, she'd bump into them at some kind of public event and she'd say, you know, mm. would you like to come to lunch at my house? And Nora would, it would be an all day affair. Nora would get everything in the morning and be preparing and then they'd have lunch and then the lunch would spill into the evening a bit. And then that was the way that she welcomed people into her life was through her cooking in this mm. generous, nourishing, hospitable way. So I think Julian Julia was probably an incredibly personal film for Nora Ephron to make, even more so than Heartburn. Yeah. 
uh, earlier when you were talking about um, Babette's Feast um, and then talking about food as kind of a, a center for a community. That reminded me also of a movie that um, I love and I rewatched uh, a bunch of this week just because uh, it's, it's a wonderful movie. Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, mm. which, uh, as the title <laughs> suggests, has a lot of food in it. And what I find interesting there in terms of, you know, the comparison to Babette's Feast is it's not just one kind of meal. Like, the whole movie is people having meals, basically. You know, like, the story's all about this this older father figure who um, is a great cook who um, uh, has kind of entered a, 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 a state of retirement. Like, he doesn't work in a restaurant anymore, but he still prepares these, like, once a week for his, his three adult daughters who all still uh, live at home for kind of like various reasons, you know, because of the, uh, the of age, but also of like their personal lives, you know, things not quite clicking for them. And uh, he, every week he makes these kind of like huge meals for them. And you see the opening credits of the movie are just him like preparing all of these dishes and doing things like, you know, like he's got a, a, a duck that he is like blowing into like it's giving mouth to mouth to kind of like inflate it so that he can kind of like stuff it and you can see him frying things and it's just this really kind of gorgeous sort of five five minute sequence of him just like of of showing like the amount of effort he puts into these big meals but then the meals themselves are actually a lot more kind of sources of tension in the movie because Mm. each time they have one of these meals one of the daughters has some sort of announcement like the the eldest daughter talks about how she wants to Oh, no, not the eldest daughter, but, the, like, the, the daughter who's kind of having the most success professionally. Uh, she talks about how she's going to be, like, she's she's put a down payment on an apartment and she's going to move out. Another one talks about, you know, like, wanting to get married and things like that. And these things that bring the whole family together are actually kind of points at which their desire for independence kind of brush up against his kind of more old-school kind of father's knows best kind of idea like it's one of the the trilogy of films angley made called which are kind of colloquially known as as the father knows best uh, trilogy where he kind of like explored intergenerational conflict between different uh taiwanese parents and their children and that that's one of the things i find like really fascinating about it is it, it is it really does highlight how what one how like gorgeous and vibrant all this Taiwanese cooking is, uh, which you also see in the handfuls of scenes where he gets called in to help at a big restaurant that he used to work at be- mm. because he's a master chef. Occasionally they'll like say, "Help, <laughs> things are <laughs> things are going badly. Please help us." Um, and like he'll like show up and he runs through this massive industrial kitchen that's got like hundreds of people kind of like whirling around, and you can really see like that angley is really enjoying the chance to just show off how much all this how much food there is and how gorgeous it all looks but uh, it it really does kind of like point to the idea that food can kind of like create these familial connections and these connections within a community which i think also comes into the immigrant um story thing but it has uh, the the, you know being in proximity to each other that way also gives rise to to tension and it's very telling that a lot of the conflicts in the movie start over you know these kind of huge wonderful elaborate meals speaking of huge wonderful elaborate meals that tension rises over i think my favorite mm-hmm. example of that has to be the age of innocence oh yes absolutely my favorite scorsese film um mm-hmm. and i think yeah i mean raging bull pretty good but have you <laughs> seen how he uh shoots all of the fish course because um, food food and these really elaborate meals are things that keep recurring 
in the age of innocence and these meals become a metaphor for this the strict codes of behavior and acceptability that are mm. um newland archer and alenska uh, played by daniel day lewis and michelle pfeiffer find themselves in and it's this very sort of strange mix of like an excess and then a complete denial all at once but the food mm. is just so vivid and there's all of these like delicate details of how stuff gets sliced and served and it's almost like you're being asked to sit at the table with them because you can see the uh, table what are they called you can see the names at the for um, oh, the table like arrangements table and yeah table arrangements yeah. and table and seating and archer's own family the the food isn't very good but mm. there's something from their chef that they have in their house but again it's more sinister because they are all immigrants they're the first kind of crop of first couple of generations of americans from you know, they, they've got these essentially these very lofty ideas of keeping England in a way. Mm. They're, they're sort of keeping this kind of British thing. And Alenska at one point doesn't really understand. You know, she's like, well, we're not part of the empire anymore. What was the whole point of the war if we're still doing things this way in terms of this etiquette, in terms of this, um, these rituals and performances? And they're some of the most tense scenes i've ever ever seen just all at the dinner table it's all eyes flashing to each other and the food absolutely is at the center of that performance that social yeah. performance and that contract they've all signed with each other yeah totally uh, and i think that food as an indicator of class is something that i think is very underrated in society in general like you often you often hear you know when people talk about um the obesity crisis in america for example like it's a thing that you know people have to have pointed out to them when people are like oh you know people shouldn't you know eat so much fast food you should like cook foods at home it's like yeah well if you've got the money <laughs> if you yeah. have the time and the money to go out and buy the ingredients and plan out meals you know that's a, that's a luxury and it's something that i think uh, a lot of people don't really take into account in those kind of discussions because like if you are working like two jobs to barely pay rent on like you know the kind of the tiny house that you that you have or the apartment that you rent like you are gonna like have to rely on you know going and buying a bunch of fast food or ready prepared meals because that's maybe the only thing that you are able to do because you know that's that's the kind of the way capitalism works you know it's a luxury yeah. to be able to prepare food for yourself and to or, or, or for your family yeah completely and I think there's class, but then there's also, I think I was just thinking there of kind of from what you were saying about um, eat, drink, man, woman, and that mm. got me thinking about noodles. And then that got me thinking about Ghibli. Oh, yeah. And I think the amazing thing that Ghibli does is, of course, there's no actual food being shot. It's all drawn. Mm. It's it's all, mm. um, and I guess this is the thing I should have made more of a point about Ratatouille, but it's only just occurred to me. It's amazing to render food that isn't real that is so appetizing like i yeah. salivate watching the noodles soak in, in the broth and you know ponyo and her and her in, insatiable insatiable thirst for ham um <laughs> is lovely and that gets across so much in terms of class but also a, a certain time but but then also a, an attitude 
an approach yeah. because that's the thing about Spirited Away. Like her parents gorge themselves on food and become these sort of strange pig monsters and she has to save them and that's you know the dangers of excess and that kind of that greed and that the transformative nature of going too far which is a is quite very i mean it's it's a globally cultural thing like we we're we're all we all have a, an eating disorder in in the current world because we have to somehow really indulge in all of this food and yet it have no effect on us whatsoever and still mm. remain healthy and yeah. but that is a particularly sort of like cultural um cultural thing and i think the the other connection that you really see in terms of specifically spirited away and ratatouille is the food through this kind of like sense memory thing of like mm. and, and this is where film i think has the advantage over like if you're writing a novel or a short story about food it's like it's really hard to convey that food is really nice to yeah. in language. It's so hard to really get that. And then, like great writers can do it, but it's like, um, you know, it, 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 there's such a like a barrier <laughs> that you have to kind of like plow through. And with the visual medium of film, at the very least, you can stimulate people's memories of like, oh, that looks like food I have had before, and I'm thinking about the food I've had before, and so it's setting off the the receptors in the mind that makes you think, oh, that must smell delicious. And I think that's one of the reasons why the food being like looking so delicious at the beginning of Spirited Away is a really good way of grounding people in this fantastical world. Particularly, yes. you know, as, as you know, kind of like white English guy like watching that for the first time, not really understanding anything about the the the, the ideas of Japanese like mythology or anything yeah. like that, and, and not really understanding the kind of storytelling that. Miyazaki is kind of like working within the tradition that he's working within seeing how good that food looks like is an is an instant way in of being like oh right I can this is um taking place in a real world where food looks delicious I can see why the parents would kind of gorge on this food even though uh, it's going to do something very terrible to them um and, and similarly like Ratatouille is a movie that requires the audience to take a lot of leaps yes. um for its basic premise to work which is okay there's a rat he loves to cook <laughs> he's got a great palate uh he's going to control this guy by pulling his hair like there's a lot lot of leaps of um uh, of logic that you have to be good with and i think that the food in addition to just looking nice and it being a pleasant aesthetic thing like it's so important that the food in those in, the, in that movie look gorgeous because it instantly grounds the audience and it's like okay this is a very solid thing that i can kind of grab hold of fantasy films food is really helpful for fantasy films as well kind of mm. moving, moving on from spirited away slightly um and the two that really stick in my mind are the force awakens where you've oh, yeah. got um the quarter portions yes exactly <laughs> and how yeah that awful bread that mm. Ray has to sort of like absolutely bust her ass to try and get, and then it just the, the way that it looks, how it looks organic, but mm. but unfamiliar. And then of course in um, the Last Jedi, Luke's infamous fish and and <laughs> the, the very intimate relationship he has with his milk <laughs> provider, um, yeah. this strange blue milk. That's really helpful because you're like, oh yeah, no, we're we're somewhere completely different. And the one that has example of this that has always stuck with me is hook and, and the bang mm. food fight with all the lost boys like everything yeah. is so rainbow vivid and bright and it manages to look like every single sweet you've ever had 
and burger party but nothing you could point to and say what's that it's just this gorgeous feat of production design to make everything look so edible and pliable even though you don't know what it is you do want to eat it (laughs) Mm. yeah and and i think that's that plays into like the enduring appeal of the original willy wonka on the chocolate factory as well like when they first go into you know the big room of the chocolate river and like all of the plants are, are, are sweets and everything like that like that and, and you know and, and gene wilder singing pure imagination like it really does uh it is a real magical moment like you know in, in the, the sense of you're being ushered into this impossible world you know this 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 candy factory where all of the food is is produced by like these kind of like strange creatures and that are are there are all of these kind of like plants that are creating gumdrops or whatever you know it really Mm. is uh i really certainly like as a kid watching it and as someone who'd like read the book and had had was really kind of like over i was really overawed by just how gorgeous that all looked now and you and i joked about this um uh, off off mic you know now i look at that i think oh god (laughs) <laughs> i feel so i get i i get so sick so quickly but like as a kid it really is like the the the, the greatest possible dream place you could imagine completely i think the other <laughs> the other example i have of like food that you want to eat even though maybe you shouldn't is the film that originally sparked my idea to want to talk to you about food on film and that mm. is phantom thread oh yes which is absolutely one of my favorite films of the past uh five years um Mm. and the way that paul thomas anderson uses food not only showing it but what it represents is absolutely amazing it's so complex and means so many different things like you know the idea of being hungry or thirsty and what Mm -hmm. for is that for power creative success solitude sex like there's so much or are you just literally hungry there's Mm -hmm. so much going on in it and I think the thing that I love and that I think says speaks the most about food in the film is that the no context phantom thread twitter account it's (laughs) it's handle unlike all of the other no context Mm -hmm. um accounts is and some sausages yeah which is as, (laughs) as weird little catchphrases go but yeah this idea of hunger and the, the the way that um reynolds's appetite waxes and wanes and then we have our first real well and quite literal uh toxic feminine hero mm. because alma manages to keep him in line by by you know it's toxic femininity going head to head with a certain kind of toxic masculinity and its artistic mm. side uh by yeah actually poisoning him <laughs> to keep him in line <laughs> and uh he ends up fucking loving it a metaphile who knew yeah someone um I, I wish i could remember who who said this because i thought it was it was so great was someone summed up uh phantom fred as uh the simple story of a dom who needs to realize he's a sub and a sub who needs to realize she's a dom <laughs> oh my god that's perfect <laughs> but then how the food reflects that shifting dynamic mm. In, in their relationship and how she wants to present her love to him through this big demonstration and, you know, getting the as- asparagus with butter rather than mm-hmm. you know, with oil as preferred and 
how they ask for or give each other food at certain different times and how mm. significant the restaurant that they keep returning to is and uh, wonderful Leslie Manville I think the only thing that we see her or, or hear about her eating um, beyond smoking some cigs uh, is steak tartare and uh, yes. Reynolds refers to her you know not only as his old so-and-so but his little carnivore so mm-hmm. there's these these implements you know she she will bare her teeth and she will eat you alive she will eat you raw if she has to the noise of Alma eating like whether she's scraping butter on her toast or if she's eating muesli on their honeymoon is quite mm-hmm. incredible like it's such a sensual um approach I also saw there was a brilliant um reddit relationships thread uh <laughs> where it was um me 61 m and my wife 32 f have been arguing about food she made my asparagus wrong has she been sent here to kill me is she a spy does she have a gun <laughs> that that scene <laughs> which is nerdy reddit film film reddit jokes go absolutely went to my went to my core that scene i rewatched it the other night because uh, i hadn't i hadn't watched it um since the cinema uh, but though I have listened to the score about fifty times, oh, same. it's so it's it's great to read to to work to. It's great to do anything to really, and that that scene I've forgotten how funny it is because it's a it's a very realistic depiction of a fire. You know, like I know yes. I've had fights like that, um, but like it's very very funny when like it 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 shows um, Vicky Creeps's face. As like he just off screen is constantly saying, "Do you have a gun? Do you have a gun? Where's your gun?" <laughs> like constantly like saying this completely ridiculous thing and like derailing this argument. And it it felt it's very very funny the way that it happens off screen and he's harping on this like ridiculous idea that he's got in the head that she's a secret agent come to ruin his evening and possibly his entire life. But uh, like 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 the harping on of a little thing is a very human <laughs> oh, yes. kind of like thing in in fights in relationships, and I think that that is uh, is deployed very very um, effectively, and also in terms of like food as kind of a representative representation of the the, the, the dynamic between the two of them. Um, something I was really struck by, which kind of just went by the first time I watched it, and then watching it again, it's like oh, that's that's a kind of like a very interesting thing to do is when they go on their first date yeah and she orders um something that has uh like a, like a cream or something in it or a sauce and he just like dips his finger in there and like tastes it and then immediately after that's when he kind of like dips his napkin in water and kind of like says you know i like to see who i'm talking to and like wipes the lipstick from her lips and i was like man this is like intimate <laughs> this is a, like such an intimate gamble it's possibly one of the most erotic things I have ever seen in mm. in a natural uh, above board, shall I say, as a euphemism film, um, <laughs> because it's the casual. Like when she puts her lips on, when she puts her lips on the napkin as well. It's, yes. It's kind of like, wow. like, <laughs> no wonder they get they get her together like straight away. Of course, <laughs> like it's all it's all there in their first meeting when he he mm. makes this extravagant breakfast order and some sausages, and. Mm. Um, then they're, they're there and she's it's her trying custard for the first time that's right yes and yeah it's just the casual completely unselfconscious way mm. that that he does just 
He, I mean, he, he goes in with two fingers. I mean, what? <laughs> I've, I've, the way, the way that I sum up uh, Phantom Thread to a lot of people is that Boogie Nights was Paul Thomas Anderson's film about pornography. Phantom Thread mm. is his porno. <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 definitely rings true to me. And uh, wrapped up in it is you know all of these gorgeous, delicious-looking meals. Like even the, the omelet at the end. Uh, like you look at it and I kind of think well on the one hand I'm like well yeah I'll eat anything Vicky Creeps put in front of me <laughs> like, I'd, find it, I'd find it very hard to uh, resist an offer from Vicky Creeps but like yeah like the omelette itself particularly when you see like the butter melting oh. in uh, like surrounding it even though the music as well is very ominous and we know exactly you know it's the the, the, the darkest interpolation of the theme the like it's the dirt the darkest version of that song in the entire movie yeah yeah and like you're still thinking it looks still looks good yeah (laughs) we've mainly talked about um fiction uh uh, fiction movies uh to to almost quote um we can't they came together um i love (laughs) fiction movies I've never met anyone who likes fiction movies. Um, but obviously there's a lot of food documentaries out there and I, and I just wanted to kind of like talk about a few of those. And, and then like one of the ones that I watched uh, this past week, which uh, I, I thought was really, really great and largely because it was about a, a, a man that uh, I didn't know until he passed away this year, but oh, oh, I hadn't really heard of until he passed away this year, um, was the movie City of Gold about the film, uh, the food critic, uh, Jonathan Gold, who... Um, I really wish I'd heard, I'd, I knew of before because I've read some of his writing since and he's an, he was an amazing uh, food critic based in LA. And I think what the movie re- really gets across is uh, his passion for all of this different food that LA mm. has, one of the, the world's great food cities with all of these different cultures that have all moved there over the hundreds of years of, of, the existence, of its existence and how they've all kind of brought all of these different flavours together. But it, it, what also comes across is this idea of food almost as like an anthropological thing. Like you can really trace the shape of a city and the history of it through immigration based on the neighbourhoods that have grown up, based on the kind of food that you can get in these sort of places. And and how it really can say something about a broader society when you have mm. a place like LA, which is this like it, it is the most melting potty place in in you know america billing itself as the, the great melting pot where you can find basically any cuisine that you want anywhere in the world because it's it's a massive place where everyone has gone to at some point yeah yeah people should, should see that movie if you can it's on hulu in the u.s at the moment and it's um it's it's really great and we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot versus shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week mine is one that totally took me by surprise uh it is the film a simple favor directed by paul feig mm. and starring anna kendrick and blake lively and i went into it because i could see clearly oh this looks quite frothy i'm not in the mood for anything heavy and i went to see it with a friend of mine and we were just so taken aback by what it was like it was great. It's got twists and turns, chills and spills. It never takes itself too seriously. It's glorious to look at. And it feels like death becomes her. Mm. For now, there's elements of, of other things like Killing Eve and Desperate Housewives, I think, runs quite strongly through it. I then raved to you about it and you um said quite rightly that it 
it feels very Almodovar as well. Yes. In terms of that women's stories in a very, I mean, it's really twisted Mm. and really fun and manages to be quite fantastical about all of these things. It's not a film that's going to stay with me forever and ever, but it, it did impress me because in this kind of Almodovar way, it manages to mishmash lots of different genres and ideas without feeling uneven. It just feels totally mm. batshit, and I was totally on board for it. Plus, I think it could become the new drink along with after Withnell and I, because they go through a hell of a lot of martinis. Mm. Yeah, you're going to have to make your space in your freezer for all the... Uh... <laughs> The glasses and the frozen gin bottles. Oh yes, and a nice big twist. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'll, I will happily recommend that one as well. Second that recommendation, I didn't really know a huge amount about it other than that it had gotten wildly divergent responses online. Like some, like you had obviously said that you would you would loved it, and uh, but other people have been like always oh, a bit all over the shop, is it? But what I liked about it was that, like, even the detractors. The detractors and the proponents of it basically said exactly the same thing. All that changed was their inflection <laughs> in terms of like everything that was a negative was a positive and everything that was a positive was a negative, depending on your your point of view. Uh, and that's kind of like a, a, a liminal space for uh, movies that I particularly enjoy. Yeah. I am um, going to recommend a TV show that uh, I watched in preparation for this this episode and then it just uh, it didn't come up so uh, i'm just going to kind of like quickly uh kind of slip it in here and that is a show that's on netflix called midnight diner colon tokyo stories <laughs> which is a japanese anthology series about a the the customers of a diner in, in tokyo that's open from as the, the 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 master the chef who owns the place says in the opening narration is open from midnight to seven and it's all about the customers that come in and their kind of like stories that unfurl each episode is named after a particular dish that the person likes and you know that kind of unfolds from there it's a great food show because you get to see all of the food being prepared and it all looks delicious even things like you know um corn dogs made from fish sausages which sounds disgusting (laughs) but when they're prepared they look really nice and it's just it's got this real lovely lo-fi feeling to it you know like these people are just existing in this weird in-between space you know all these people who work jobs that you know kind of come out late or like you know like taxi drivers or comedians or you know uh, people who are just out for the night and they happen to stumble into this diner and it's really is really lovely seeing how they all kind of like play off of against each other in these stories being told and uh, I, I just thought it was it was really really charming apparently this is the fourth season of it because the show is um they've aired four seasons and made two movies of it in japan but only the this current fourth season is on netflix uh and uh, that's one of those things where uh i I kind of have a brief moment of reflecting do i need to know japanese learn japanese (laughs) (laughs) kind of like is this what's gonna what's gonna get me there so i'm just downloading (laughs) seasons of this show to watch but um this fourth season really feels very assured like it's, you can tell this is a show that's been going for a while and everyone knows what they're doing so mm. i think it's a really good place for people to to jump in because it's a really uh, funny strange interesting show if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm all the usual places uh reviewers raters recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience 
You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.